The following shiur is presented by Dayan Shlomo Cohen, Dayan in Beddin Ahavat Shalom in Yerushalayim, an author of Pure Money. For more shiurim or information, please visit theshc.org or call 1-844-200-TSHC. That's 1-844-200-8742. This is Rabbi Shlomo Cohen with a shiur on Parashat Shuftim. In this week's Parsha, we're told by Hashem how to go to war. The way that a Jew goes to war is not the way that a non-Jew goes to war. And we'll see from this Parsha, from a number of points, the standard, the moral standard that is expected of a Jew when he goes into war and how this can affect so many different things. War is a terrible thing. Everyone agrees on that. It says in Isaiah that we're praying for the times when, as the Navi says, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into preening hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against another nation and they will no longer learn war. That is certainly the times that we are waiting for. But until then, unfortunately, there are times when war is unavoidable. So let's see how the Torah approaches war um, and how we're supposed to tr- do it and, and treat it. Avraham Avinu, the epitome of peace, whose whole life was devoted to doing kindness. Nevertheless, we see in Bereshit that he too was um, obligated under certain situations to go into war. A soldier that's acting according to the halakha can't do as he wishes. Even at this time, when his adrenaline is pumping, his heart is beating, everything is going at a top pace. He's involved in killing. There's blood all around him. Nevertheless, he can't indulge himself in excessive force, brutality, or vandalism. He's limited and ruled by the halakha, even at this time. Even though it's an obligation to go to war at certain times, nevertheless, that doesn't mean that it's going to put the person that goes to war and has to do these terrible things, these terrible acts of killing other people, that he's protected from um, influ- from influencing him. We find that King David, David Amelech, he wanted to build the Beit HaMikdash. He wanted to build the house for Hashem, but he was told by the Prophet, he was told from Hashem, excuse me, that he can't build it. He's not going to be allowed to build the temple. Why not? Because he's got a lot of blood on his hands. Because he went to war. In wars that he was allowed to do. In wars that they asked the Urim Vatumim. They asked if they were, prophetically, are we supposed to go to war? And the answer was yes. You are supposed to go to war in this particular case. Nevertheless, David Melech was connect, was affected by this. And we're told that he, that for that reason, he wasn't allowed to build the Beit HaMikdash and the task was given to his son Shlomo who is going to have peace during his time. 
He's going to be the one that's going to build the Beit HaMikdash. We also find that a Kohen who's killed someone, he can't, can no longer do Birkat Kohanim, even if he killed them unintentionally. There's a tshuva from Rabbi Vadi Yosef that Israeli soldiers are not included in this. And an Israeli soldier who's a Kohen that killed other people during war does not have to, um, is allowed to, sorry, is allowed to carry on doing Birkat Kohanim. The Torah we can see is worried about the moral behavior of our soldiers. The Pasuk says, when we go out to war against our enemies, and we've taken captives, and you see there a woman, a woman that, that, that looks good to you, and you want to marry her, and you bring her home, there are halachas involved, there are halachot involved. Even though killing brings out the beast in people, makes people cruel even. It can affect you so much. Nevertheless, you still have to control your desires. If you see a woman that you like, you can't just do whatever you like right now. There's a process. An interesting point comes out of this, the Kuzari points out, that our Torah doesn't um, depress our feelings. Our Torah allows ex the expression of our feelings. It doesn't demand chastity. It just says, control it. Right? Other religions demand chastity in certain cases. The Jewish religion doesn't demand that. It demands control, self-control. That's all. All, all, your, all your desires can be expressed in different ways, in permitted ways. And here is a permitted way for this desire to be expressed. Even though normally, who would allow you because you just saw someone that you liked to grab them and take them home and, uh, and, and, and convert them and marry them. But the Torah realizes that at this time of war, a person is not in a normal state. A person, a soldier, who's been going through the things and seen the things that a soldier is seeing and has seen, he's in a situation that it's very, very difficult for him to control himself. Nevertheless, the Torah says that here you have to behave in a different way. It's incredible that we see that even at this time where everything terrible is going on around you, there's defilement, purity, there's this impurity, there's, there's bloodshed, idolatry, slander, all these things are going wrong, are going around you at the time. Says the Ramban, that at a time of war, all moral restraints are lowered. There's, a, there's no, and there's no sense of shame that people would normally have with regard to theft and immorality because of the cruelty that envelops a soldier when he's in war. Nevertheless, we find that we're told, ki tetzei, in, 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 the, in, in uh, the Humash tells us in Dvarim, that when, at this time, when you're at war, you have to be careful about purity in your camp. The halachot of how a person is supposed to be behaving when he's privately in the bathroom are learnt from the way that we're told to behave in the camp that our soldiers have. You can imagine a soldier's camp where, where, where people are coming back to the camp after a day of, of, of fighting 
after a day of seeing bloodshed, of adrenaline pumping at top speed, that when coming home to your camp, you would imagine it would be very difficult to calm down, very difficult to to shed that cruelty that we we said that the Rishonim tell us envelops a person. But nevertheless, we see that there's an obligation to do that. You have to keep your camp pure. That means not only sanitary, it not only means that everything has to be clean, but it also means total purity, purity of thought, purity of actions. Everything has to be clean. Why? Because we have to understand that Hashem is with us in our camp. At this time of war, Hashem is with us. The Shekhinah is together with us. When the Shekhinah is with us, then we're expected to behave exceptionally. We're expected to, to behave um, differently, completely. We're told that you're not allowed to be afraid at the time of war. How can someone be commanded not to be afraid? Either you're afraid or you're not afraid. Is it possible to command someone not to be afraid? Someone who has proper bitachon, someone who believes in Hashem and realizes that Hashem is with him at the time, won't be afraid. And that's the obligation here. For a person to trust in Hashem, for a person to realize. Belief in, belief, in, belief in Hashem is such a simple principle. It's such a simple thing, you just need to look at something very simple in nature. And from that you can straight away tell, definitely there's a God that created this world. And God is definitely with me. Once you realize that, there's no reason to be afraid anymore. Miracles. Miracles happen. Because of the miracles that are happening around us, we must realize that Hashem is with us all the time. I heard from um, a general that in all the important institutes where they teach war, whether it's Sandhurst or West Point, in all these places they teach the principles of warfare. They don't teach about the battles of Israel. The Yom Kippur War, the six, excuse me, the Six Day War, for example. They don't teach those wars. Why? Because they're totally unexplainable. And there's nothing to be learned from them as far as they're concerned. Incredible. They were absolute miracles in the Six Day War that happened to the Jewish people at the time of war. Not to be afraid. But this thing of not being afraid is more than that. You can also not be afraid by just understanding just think, looking at the world and, con- and considering how the world was created. Let's look at some creations. I look at one small creation. There's a small ant that lives in the Sahara Desert. This ant comes out of his little hole. He's got a centimeter wide hole, maybe even less than a centimeter. And he comes out of the hole and he goes off looking for food. And he goes in a zigzag fashion looking for some little kernel or little thing that's been left around. And he goes in one way, and then he turns and goes in another, and then another. In a total, totally um, unorganized, zigzag way, this little ant goes off. And once he finds something, he turns around and comes back in a straight line to his, to his nest. And he comes back in a straight line in the middle of the Sahara Desert to this one centimeter wide hole. If he misses it by a centimeter, he's blind. Okay? If he misses it by a centimeter... 
He's going to be wandering off in the desert for the rest of his life. Not, no chance of survival. But none of them ever do. When they turn around, they come back in a straight line directly back to their, to their nest. How do they do this? The scientists were baffled. They thought maybe they leave a scent. They checked it. There's no scent left there. So how do they do it? Someone had an idea. He noticed that every time that they change direction, when they go, come out of the hole and go off in this zigzag way, that they stand on their hind legs and look upwards. And then they go off in the new direction. So what does that mean? So they put some of them in a cage with mirrors to deflect the sun. And they saw that all those that they um, deflected the sun's image with, they all got lost. You know what that means? That this little ant, with a brain the size smaller than a pea, is, is navigating himself by the sun. Something that our top fighter pilots would be happy to be able to do with all the top, the, the enormous computers and uh, top technology of our time. Um, and this little ant does it by himself and he's learned to do it somehow. The only way is that God created him. Anyone with understanding in their head could understand that. So why should someone be afraid? Says Rabbi Akiva in the Gemara in Masechet Sota that the fear is the fear of war. The fear is the fear, and some say that the fear is that they won't be able to kill other people. Rabbi Yossi says that they're afraid because the person is a sinner. And he's afraid that he's going to, pun- he's going to be punished during the war. All people like that have to go back. We don't want people, we don't want sinners with us. Anyone who's afraid that they're deserving of punishment and is worried that now they're going to get that punishment during this war, they should go home. We don't want them with us. They're going to help with the supplies. But they can't be in the main front of the battle because they will cause problems for the other soldiers. You can imagine how many people would be left after that. If all the sinners go home, everyone who's done any avera and is worried that he's going to be but they're going to be punished. You're going to have an army of the biggest sadikim of the time. Anyone who's newly married doesn't go out to war. They go back home. Someone who's just built a house and hasn't yet lived in the house would also go home. But we're told that these exceptions only apply to a milchemet mitzvah. There are two types of wars, a milchemet mitzvah and a milchemet reshut. Says the Rambam, what's a milchemet mitzvah? A milchemet mitzvah is like the battles that Yeshua had fought when he captured Eretz Israel from the seven, seven nations. Or the battle that, that is required to eradicate Amalek. Or any battle that is needed to defend Israel against enemy attack. All these battles are considered as milchemet mitzvah, and all the exceptions don't apply. Everyone would have to go, even a kala, we're told, is going straight out to the to, to war in the case of a milchemet mitzvah. The other type of war is a milchemet rishut. That means it's a type of battle to extend the borders of Eretz Israel, like the battles that King David did. That doesn't mean that he decided to do these. 
He was, only did them according to the Urim Vatumim. He had permission, prophetical permission, to do these things. Nevertheless, the laws of this war are slightly different. In a Milchemet Rashud, the exceptions that we've mentioned, they apply there only, but not in the case of a Milchemet Mitzvah. So we said that including a Milchemet Mitzvah, according to the Rambam, is also defending the boundaries of, of Israel. What about a preemptive attack to protect the boundaries of Israel? Is that included in it? Say our post-Gemir, yes, it certainly is. Of course it is, because defending your boundaries, you don't need a commandment. Of course you're going to go out and defend your boundaries. But to make a preemptive attack to defend your boundaries, that's um, the chidush of the pasuk, that even in such a case, you're allowed to go straight out to war. And it's considered as a milchemet mitzvah, and all the exceptions that we've mentioned about who doesn't have to go out to war don't apply. The Torah tells us, in this week's parasha as well, that before you go to war, we must ask for peace. Says the Pasuk, When you get close to a city, to a town, to fight it, you must call for peace first. And if they say that they want peace, then the people now become your servants, they'll have to pay taxes to you, um, but you won't harm anyone. Only if they don't answer peace, that they want peace, only then do you go to battle. The Rambam says that this applies also to a Milchemet Mitzvah, um, while Rashi disagrees and says that it only applies to a Milchemet Rashut. There's a question whether the call for peace is a means to get to the end, to conquering them, or the peace is an end in itself, because we want peace. If you say that it's a, that a call for peace is to, a means to get to the end of conquering, then that would seem to be the explanation of the Rambam, that this applies also to a Muhammad mitzvah. But if you say that it's an end in itself to make peace with them, then it would only apply to a Muhammad Rishut, and that's what Rashi is saying, because in the case of a war against Amalek, um, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't, we wouldn't want to get to peace with them. There's a special commandment to wipe them out. The Talmud says, however, that Gadola Shalom, we learn the greatness of peace from the fact that the Jewish people will ask for peace even in a time of war. Another halacha after going to war is that when you're surrounding the city, you have to leave them a way out. The, the Sefer Achiluch explains this, that there's a special mitzvah and importance that when you're, when you're sieging a town, you have to leave an escape route for your enemies. Why? What's the logic involved in leaving an, an escape route? The Ramban gives two reasons for the leaving the escape route. One is to encourage compassion and mercy, that we should have mercy on the people that we're, that we're, we're fighting against. And the other reason that he brings is a tactical reason. The tactical reason is that when someone's back is to the wall, when they have no way to escape, then 
they fight more furiously. But when they know that there's a way out, when they know that there's a way that they can get out and save themselves, then they, their fighting is weakened. They fight less strongly. Because they're always thinking to themselves, well, you know, wow, I can get out of this if I want to. Again here, there's a machlokat, when do we leave them this way out? The opinion of the Ramban is that only in a milchemet should we leave them a way out. But the Rambam again carries on with his opinion that we've mentioned earlier, that also in the case of the Muhammad Mitzvah, we're supposed to leave a way out. The Meisha Chochmah explains that according to the Rambam, this is primarily a tactical thing, that it's going to weaken the enemy. And that's why it would apply also in the case of a Muhammad Mitzvah. Like we said before, that it's going to weaken the enemy, that by thinking that there's a way out, they'll fight less furiously. Whereas the Ramban says that it's a question of mercy. And saying that it's a question of mercy would only apply in the case of a Muhammad Rashid. After the Beirut, Beirut siege in 1982, when the Israeli Defense Force had the PLO surrounded in Beirut, and uh, Arafat was there too, there was an argument amongst the rabbis in Israel as whether they should be left to escape or not. There was a way out. They had a way out over the sea. And in the end what happened was they were left to get out that way to save themselves. And there was a question that the, the, the Israeli army could have not left them that way out. There was one rabbi, Rab Goren, that his opinion was that we had to leave them a way out just like the Rambam says, that it's a question of, 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 of a tactical question. And therefore even in a, a Milchemic Mitzvah we leave them a way out. Whereas Rabbi Yisraeli said no, because he was paskening like the Ramban, that the whole reason is being merciful. But these people are people that are bent on killing us and destroying us. And according to, to, to the opinion of Rabbi Yisraeli, this war that was being fought against the PLO is a Milchemet Mitzvah, and not a Milchemet Rashut, because it's to defend the borders of Israel from um, our enemies, from destruction. So that was an argument that there was then, um, and in the end, as everyone knows, the history was that the PLO were and Arafat were allowed to escape. But of course, our hope is always that there will be no more wars. We, the Jewish people, are always want. We are peace lovers. We want to live in peace. We want to have peace with everyone and fulfil our purpose in this world to be a light to the nations. Bezat Hashem that will soon in our days fulfill the Pasukim in Yeshayahu, the book of Isaiah, that as we said at the beginning of this year, everyone will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into preening hooks. Nations will not lift up sword against another nation and they will no longer learn war. This audio series has been brought to you by the Sephardic Halakha Center. The center is committed to advancing research and application of halakha in the Sephardic community nationwide. For a halakhic consultation, monetary bedin services, to order this series or to sign up to receive the Sephardic halakha journal, or for all other information, please call 1-844-200-TSHC or email info at the shc.org to subscribe.